Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Hey. Oh, okay. How are you? Okay, too. Sounds like you've been uh, a little bit stressed lately. A lot of work, no f- no play. Um. Yeah, but we don't need to bring my my burdens into this uh, any more than um, any more than is helpful, which I think would be about zero. I think I think um, I, I doubt. You know, people have burdens of their own, Josh. You have burdens. Do you want to talk about your burdens? Not necessarily. Let's 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 focus on our. See what I mean? Yeah, it's. See what I mean? Let's focus on the col- collective burden here. Okay, well, that's what we'll talk about. So this, this uh, first of all, let me say, I'm Robert Wright. You're Josh Summers. This is the Wright Show. Rate and review. Blah blah blah. Uh, for people who haven't seen the first, uh, any of the first seven installments of these conversations, which are called the Dharma of Bob, at your suggestion. In fact, the whole thing is your idea. I would not be so presumptuous as to think that uh, I could speak for all Bobs, for example. Um, uh, but in case there's anybody who isn't familiar with you, do you want to say anything about yourself? Um, yeah, sure. I, I mean, professionally, I've been working as a yoga and meditation instructor for a number of years. We met, you and I met on a silent meditation retreat in 2003, kicked up a bit of a friendship, I think later in the early teens, like. 2011, maybe, uh, after another retreat, we have a shared late friend, Michael Brooks, um, and whose death was kind of the, uh, kind of initiated these conversations in an odd way that we needn't get into, but yeah, he, he, um, he was a mutual friend and, um, and, uh, to some extent, these, these conversations I like to think are in the spirit of his legacy. I like to think of it that way too. He'd be happy about it. So yeah, that's that's sort of, and and we're here to talk about. I'm trying to help facilitate the, your clarity and uh, delivery of message around your worldview and and uh, potentially your salvific message. It's a job somebody's got to do. Now let me uh, tell you this kind of um, weird backstory of this particular conversation. Okay, so there's a podcast called Decoding the Gurus, which uh, kind of assesses what they call secular gurus, uh, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris being a couple of prominent examples. I- I've actually been on their podcast, but not as a secular guru. And in general, the secular gurus don't necessarily appear on their podcast. They just kind of appraise, they play clips of the secular gurus. Uh, and it's a, it's a, a critical perspective, but, but not in the sense of being entirely negative in, in, in the good sense of the term critical, they do bring a certain skepticism to many, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to bear on many skeptical, uh, secular gurus. Anyway, this Twitter exchange between me and, uh, the hosts, uh, Matthew Brown and Chris Kavanaugh happened where they said, well, why don't we treat me as a secular guru and appraise me. And even though they realize I'm kind of a borderline case, uh, you know, I don't really go in full on guru mode the way say Sam or Jordan Peterson does, I would say, but you know, and they said, well, where's the source material? Good question. Precisely because I don't think I have as much of that kind of material as, uh, Sam or, uh, uh, or any of the 
the, the kinds of people they tend to appraise. And I said, well, I've done these, these, did you want to interject something? Well, I guess I would be curious what specifically would be the source material that would put someone in the Well, like for Sam, they they did, they they had him talking about meditation, for example. Um, And uh, I don't know, uh, Jordan Peterson, I forget by now, but you know, he's got plenty of stuff. You know, you know, he really goes into sermonizing mode. For example, he talks about the logos. That's one thing I actually have in common with him. I talk about the logos. Uh, so you're in the, the logos um, tribe. I, uh, well, I'm not sure we're in the, there's much overlap between our tribes, but there is that linguistic uh, intersection. The, the uh, So anyway, I said, well, there are these seven Dharma Bob conversations. And if you want, I could do a kind of grand summing up uh, for, you know, uh, for the sake of efficiency with Josh, try to package it all together and into one convenient unit. But would that be cheating for us to, for me to, you know, prepare a conversation that is intended for your appraisal. And they kind of didn't get back to me. Meanwhile, I set this up with you. And then I heard from them and the answer was, yes, that would be cheating. Uh, you know, in other words, they, they can't use this as the, the thing they, they quote from on the podcast, but, but they said, you know, still could be useful. Um, so in any event, um, I, uh, you know, I consider it useful, uh, I, to, to try to do a look at the whole worldview from, uh, maybe a broader perspective than we've tried to do in any single conversation of ours. Um, and I have some ideas about how we might start, but anyway, that's a strange kind of framing of this conversation. So this won't be used as source material for the, 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 uh, the, this will not be nothing you say. You don't have to worry about anything you say being used on the decoding the gurus podcast. So then I'm just trying to think today, briefly think through the, the functionality of this. This might serve as, as recruiting material for people in search of a secular guru. That I'm, I'm open to that, you know, you know, and, uh, yes. And, and they can sell all their worldly possessions and we know where they should send the proceeds. The, um, I guess I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm briefly, you know, I'm also interested in like how you see yourself within this. Like what, where do you see yourself having maybe one foot in secular guru land and maybe where you, where you're departing from that position? Uh, because it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, I had them on my podcast and I was trying to get clarity on, on what constitutes a secular guru. I think they would acknowledge that the borders are a little fuzzy. That's the way life is. I think they, uh, my sense is that there were a few people who were kind of the motivating influence for them in terms of people they really wanted to talk about. If you look at the early podcasts, there's a lot of kind of intellectual dark web types, mm-hmm. uh, some wine, Eric and, and Brett Weinstein stuff. I mean, this is, it's an interesting conversation in its own right. The, the, I mean, there is kind of a genre here, right? And yet, if you just talk about these four people, Eric and Brett Weinstein, Jordan, Jordan uh, and, and Sam Harris, um, th- that's four very different people with very different styles. They're all very good at talking in different ways. Mm-hmm. They all have different interesting rhetorical powers. And, uh, 
and and it's an interesting feature of, of our age technologically that 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 can really be a valuable thing for someone either in guru space or in public intellectual space or whatever. You know, it wasn't like this 40 years ago. Unless you had such a big audience 40 years ago that you could go on CBS, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't help to be a good orator really much. You had to communicate with writing if you had the size of, of, of following that public intellectuals or even most secular gurus would have. So you have this interesting species of people who are extremely good at talking. Yes. And that's honestly, that's one difference between them and me. I, I don't, I, I just, I'm not horrible. You're, but you're, I'm not, I don't, you know, they, they all have these special oratorical powers that are different in each case. Right. No, they are. They're, there's a, there's a definitely a charismatic. I, I will say one thing they have. They project tremendous self-confidence. You don't hear any of them saying, I mean, at least, you know, it could be this way. On the other hand, the counter argument would be, you know, you don't, you don't, I mean, sometimes the Weinsteins make a thing of, of that, but basically you, you hear a lot of confident assertions and. And that makes, I would that. say that makes you a difficult candidate for that, that category, because part of your char character's makeup is to rigorously interrogate your own positions and and cast out on it and, and, and doubt yourself and, and, and I, do you not accept that? I mean, I, I try, I think we would all say all those people would say they try. And, and, and part of my worldview is that none of us is in position to judge how successful we are. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, the human mind was designed to convince you by natural selection to convince you that you know, yeah, it's a completely reliable instrument. You're, you're the one seeing things clearly, and everyone who disagrees with you is the one who's wrong. Yeah. That, that's part of, uh, you know, what, what I guess we'll get to if we, start, uh, if we start talking about the actual Dharma of Bob. So what I thought, as I told you, I, uh, I had a dream last night. I woke up thinking I was on the stage with Sharon Salzberg, which I've been uh, uh, once, and, uh, and the dream... Sharon B. She's this famous meditation teacher from Insight uh, Meditation Society, a co-founder of it, and that's where you and I met. Mm -hmm. um, and I was supposed to talk, and I didn't have anything prepared. And I have variants of that dream, not infrequently, actually. But but um, I realized it was a reference to this conversation that I was about. I was going to tape several hours after I woke up with this dream, and I thought about it a little, and my my plan became to start at the very beginning of uh, evolutionary time. And in a way, at the very beginning of, uh, of Bob time, I, I mean, uh, I, I want to talk, I want to start off by talking both about some things about evolution in the broad sense. Biological evolution, which starts a few billion years ago, all the way through culture, the cultural evolution that has gotten us where we are today. Um, I want to talk about some things that are and aren't amazing about that. And that, that I kind of picked up on fairly early in my, like during college and, and the picking up on them kind of steered my own, my own intellectual development. Mm -hmm. 
And then ultimately, we hope this does lead to more uh, practical things, including meditation and, and we'll see. Right. There's, uh, there's, there's descriptive arms to your worldview and, and some prescriptive arms to your worldview. And, yeah. and so starting with natural selection or evolution, you want to, that's, that's beginning more at the yeah. descriptive lens. So yeah, what happened in college uh, I mean, for you? So, I mean, I first got amazed by natural selection in high school when I really understood it. Just, just understood the way it actually works. Pretty amazing and powerful. In college, I, I guess I would say it seems to me there are a couple of things that should amaze you about evolution. And one thing that shouldn't, or at least it's natural for these things to amaze you. I mean, I think you, it is very natural to be amazed when you first understand natural selection that it could have led to all this in the sense of all animal species, including us. Very simple principle. You start off with some genetic material, some information encoded in, in chemistry. These happen to be strands of information that make copies of themselves. Uh, they make copying mistakes every once in a while. And that's the whole algorithm at the beginning, apparently. The copying mistakes create variety. The varieties that are best at getting themselves copied persist and flourish. And that's it. And, and you know, I mean, as things develop and you get sexual recombination, you get new sources of novelty, of variety. But still, in the beginning, it's pretty much copying and copying errors, as I understand it. Uh, and, and uh, you know, more or less. Anyway, it's a pretty, pretty simple algorithm. And I think at it, it, it first, you should be amazed in a kind of head-scratching way, like, wait, are you sure? Like, you know, you, this, you start out with this in the primordial ooze, and then the next thing you know, you're like, you know, talking to an Uber driver, like, well, you know, how do we really seriously, can we, um, and, uh, first of all, it's not next thing you know, it's several billion years later, but still it should amaze you. But then, um, what should in a way amaze you more is how it's, it's not amazing. What I mean by that is, when you think about, start thinking about the algorithm, you start seeing its power. You start, you start seeing why, yes, actually given long enough, uh, and, and, you know, and given a planet that's, that's, you know, not too hot, not too cold and so on, and doesn't get wiped out, you know, by some catastrophe, then it's really not that amazing because the, the algorithm is that powerful. Okay. Uh, and there, there are subtle wrinkles to how powerful it is. For And a big one is, and this was a big epiphany for me in college, when I first understood the theory of kin selection. Now, theory of kin selection at the level of organisms explains why we uh, feel altruistic toward close relatives, why that would be favored by natural selection. And it, it, there's... Um, you could hear that without understanding how the mechanism works. And I think when you understand how that, the actual selective mechanism does favor that kind of altruism, it's so beautiful and elegant that you might have an epiphany the way I did when I finally understood it. But, but an interesting thing about that is it also applies at, at, at much lower levels of 
organization than multi-celled organisms, okay? So, uh, you know, for example, once a strand replicates and there's a copy of itself next to it, if it does things that help the other strand that, that has the same information, that kind of altruism will be favored right at the beginning of time. And I don't want to dwell on that or, you know, I could, I've explained it in my book, Non-Zero, mm-hmm. um, but, but um, uh, in the chapters on biological complexity, but that's an amazing fact and helps, it helps explain why you start getting uh, cellular complexity. It helps explain um, why you get multi, why multi-celled life has evolved multiple times independently. It wasn't just one lucky shot. It, it's, it's evolved independently. I don't know what the count is, six, seven, eight times or something. And um, so- So are you, are you, you're, you know, you're saying that at, at the genetic level, there's a kind of altruism being expressed? Well, I'm not saying that, that, that one strand of DNA is, you know, has this warm feeling in its heart. I'm just saying, in fact, we'll get to the question of why there are feelings, which is another amazing thing. But- I'm saying the behavioral expression. I'm saying if you've got if you've got three strands of identical, say RNA floating around in the primordial ooze, any three strands of genetic information, and uh, they develop a mutation such that if there's something that threatens all three, uh, the first one to sense it steps out and says and 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 does a self-sacrificial thing that saves the other two okay that will be favored by natural selection i'm not talking about any altruism in the subjective sense i'm just saying any behavior that happens to have the effect of saving copies of uh, uh you know identical copies of this uh, those will be favored by natural selection. If genes happen to arise that that foster behaviors that are self-sacrificial in the literal sense, like this strand dies, but it means these two strands live, that will be favored. Um, and the, I, I want to leave it at that for now because you know you could you could spend all day, but kind of trust me, I, I, I would ask and. Um, I, I think, uh, anyway, that, there's also a kind of a, there's a non-zero-sum logic driving it. But in general, when you, when you um, think about, the, when you really think about the, the algorithm of natural selection, you start, you start thinking, well, okay, so if it has enough time, billions of years, and it has these really powerful properties and novelty is generated and you give this very simple algorithm enough time, yeah, it actually isn't surprising in a way that we get uh, higher and higher levels of complexity, multi-celled life, so on, smarter and smarter forms of life, which we have over time. Doesn't mean all lineages get a lot smarter. But in a sense, all have gotten smarter. They're all smarter than they started out. Everyone, bacteria, all of them have more behavioral flexibility than they did once. Um, and given enough time, it's probably not surprising that you get a species as intelligent as us. Now, now that you start getting controversial with that claim, I don't mean 
I mean, I just mean there's disagreement among biologists on exactly how likely our level of intelligence was or wasn't. I, I vote with those who say was pretty likely given enough time. But my point is the second kind of amazement you can have about evolution is when you realize in a sense, it's not so amazing because then you go, whoa, what an amazing algorithm. I mean, if you have an algorithm that is actually likely to generate all this stuff, and it's as simple as I just described it, that's like the world's most powerful algorithm. That's amazing. It is. I think I may have quoted this on a different conversation, but years back, I was watching a, a, a show in Ireland, um, RTE1 talk show, and Richard Dawkins was with a guest, and someone asked him, define natural selection. And I think he said something like the non-random selection of randomized process. Does that sound... Like, you know, that makes sense insofar as it goes. I, I mean, I think he would agree that as time goes on, it can become the case that the novelty is generated in a way that's not, maybe strictly speaking, uh, random. It's called the, the, the evolution of evolvability. Um, you know, and this is within the constraints of standard Darwinian thinking, but, but you know, organisms can get, get develop, uh, uh, things that make novel characteristics uh, maybe a little more likely than pure randomness to be useful and to survive. But that's, there's nothing mystical there or anything. That's a wrinkle, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, so right. It's, and, it's utterly uh, simple. Uh, the algorithm is utterly simple. And yet I'm saying, you know, the first form of amazement, again, is like, whoa, I don't see how that could have happened. That's amazing. Must have taken a miracle. And then you realize, no, it didn't take a miracle. And that's even more amazing because it's such a tribute to the power of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, so then here, here's a truly amazing thing and mystifying and baffling and, and wonderful thing about all of this is that for reasons that we don't understand, and I maintain that anybody who says they does understand this with all due respect is confused. I would say for reasons we don't understand, it is like something to be alive. There is subjective experience associated with being certainly a human organism, at least me. I mean, this is the only one I can verify <laughs> me, but it's like something to be me. I'm pretty sure it's like something to be you. I'm reasonably confident. It's like something you'd be my dogs. Uh, at the moment, they're sleeping. I, it may not be like much, but... Uh, and, and that, again, you know, I think we probably talked about the argument for why it's not clear why uh, subjective experience had to be part of this whole thing. Well, no, I, I was just going to say that. I don't think we've gotten into that. I think that would be something to okay. open up a little well, bit, which is... I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a critical... Uh, it's a critical uh, part of my worldview, how amazing it is. Um, but, but just to, if, I, if I can reflect it, it's, it's just that you could have yeah. the natural, you could have the evolutionary process you're describing without subjectivity. Exactly. It's, without, I mean, we intuitively think that our subjective experience is functionally valuable. If your hand gets close to a flame, you feel the heat and you withdraw your hand and you think, wow, it's a good thing I have subjective experience because I felt the pain withdrew my hand. Well, okay, but according to mainstream behavioral science, 
The subjective experience was not essential. I mean, mainstream behavioral science says, look, I can show you the physical sensors on your finger and the flow of physical information that goes up your arm and the processes it trigger that lead to the reflex of withdrawing your arm. Moreover, we can build robots that have all that and we assume it's not like anything to be them. So we have a lot of reason to believe that the subjective experience is superfluous in functional terms. Um, and in any event, uh, which, you know, that's, so, that, that, that statement alone, that's, that's one of those creepy, weird, whoa, kind of ideas that, that you could be totally functioning, running around, doing your thing and have zero right. subjectivity. And I just want to say the only alternative to that, okay, you can posit a function to the subjective stuff as Descartes did. But then you're kind of departing from what we think of as, as, a, as a scientific worldview. You're attributing causal influence to, in a certain sense, non-physical stuff. I mean, subjective experience, my subjective experience is not physical uh, in the sense that all the things we call physical are because no one can observe it but me. Everything we call physical, the, the, the little atoms in my brain and so on, can in principle be observed by more than one person. Two different people can look at my brain through a microscope and see that. Mm. Two different people can look at everything we call physical and agree that it's there. But our subjective experience is something that is not publicly observable, okay? So um, if you wanna say, no, actually, I think you're experiencing the pain is what led uh, the hand withdrawal. Well, fine, it could be that life is that weird. But that's super weird, too, because it means that the scientific paradigm is inadequate to encompass, um, you know, all of causality. And and uh, so anyway, I mean, yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, let me see if I can jump in. Um, so the. The subjectivity, uh, it's. I'm kind of I'm getting a little turned around in my head trying to think through this, but. Um, you can, where am I with this? You can help me out here. You're, you were just saying, oh. I, I'm kind of going blank first in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way. Um, so, but you, uh, okay. So let me say the, 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 the technical term, I mean, look, if you pin most behavioral scientists down on what their view of consciousness is, and most of them don't think about it much or clearly articulate it, but if you, Look at the way they talk about stuff. Most kind of physical behavioral scientists, they have what is called the epiphenomenal view of consciousness. That is to say, it is generated by physical processes and it is influenced by physical processes. Like if you uh, drop a brick on my hand, that's a physical process that alters my state of consciousness. Yep. But it does not in turn influence the physical processes themselves. This is the implicit at least mainstream view of consciousness. And uh, a comparison would be, you know, it's like consciousness, subjective experience has the relationship to my brain that a shadow of my hand has to my hand. My hand influences the shadow, but the shadow doesn't influence my hand. Now, there are philosophers who, who will, you know, like Daniel Dennett, go on and on about Whatever. But basically, the only three options are either you're an epiphenomenalist or you actually don't believe consciousness exists. Mm -hmm. 
which some philosophers say, which is nuts, uh, with all due respect. And some, and some philosophers don't say, but I think kind of secretly believe, and I've accused Dennett of this, but he, of course, vigorously denies it. Or you can have some third view of consciousness that I think doesn't fit readily into, into that greatly complicates the whole scientific paradigm. And some people might say, look, quantum physics is so weird that it demands a conception of consciousness that weird. Okay, fine. But anyway, we're in weird land mm -hmm. if we're not in epiphenomenal land and if consciousness exists. And, I, and my point is that even epiphenomenal land is weird land because it means that we have this subjective experience that has no obvious functional explanation. There's no reason it exists, which is all the more amazing when you realize it's what gives life meaning, right? If, if you imagine a planet where these organisms exist, the DNA starts replicating more and more complex machines. And again, you wouldn't expect consciousness to magically show up. You don't need to invoke it to explain why natural selection builds these machines. But you imagine that you get organisms as complex as us, but they're not sentient. Then you would say, well, look, Killing one or two, blowing them up, it's really not a big moral deal, right? I mean, what's, it, there's no suffering on this planet. There's no, you're not depriving anyone of joy. There's no subjective experience, you know? And so subjective experience, this is the thing that gives life meaning. It is the thing that creates moral meaning. And it is the thing that science has no explanation for. Right, that was the piece, okay? that, was, that was the piece I got tripped up and had a, had a brain uh, cloud come, come through for a minute. Um, it's that the, the biology, the biological process, the physical process that gives rise to it can, you know, you can study nerves, you can st study, uh, uh, neurochemicals, uh, all you want, but you will not, that will not give any sense of what it's like, what the interior state of consciousness is. Of another person's consciousness. Right. That's correct. Right. Um, and. So when you put, okay, when you put like this gift of subjective experience, it doesn't always feel like a gift. Sometimes life is painful uh, and nature is full of cruelty and suffering. And yet I think most of us would say, yeah, all, all told, I'd rather have subjective experience and live through the bad days, but have the good, right? I mean, in any event, I, I think it is what gives life meaning. And when you put that together with the fact that this amazing algorithm of natural selection does generate more and more complex uh, forms of life, uh, you know, if erratically, still kind of inexorably, then away, in a way you've got this algorithm that is a machine for making more and more meaning. Okay, that's, that's okay? where I was, I thought you were going, and that's where my head was going too, right? That, that, that somewhere along the algorithm's trajectory, it's generating, would you say it's generating a... a, a forms of consciousness that themselves evolve to generate meaning how 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 how, how solid is well, that I mean, that idea uh if i said the forms of conscious oh, I, well i well i maybe you should say that again let me let me see <laughs> no i'm i am i'm way out of, i just want to acknowledge i'm way out of my depth in terms of discussing consciousness like, like you I mean, you know you've had much more familiarity and, and study of it um I get turned around very quickly in, in, when, it, when I hear people talk about it because it just starts to blow my mind so much. I'm like, I can't get my head around this. But you're not saying where and when consciousness comes online, right? 
But you're just sort of saying. No, I, I mean, I'm agnostic. I, I think I share. I think it's not crazy to think it's it, it exists in small measure in anything we call life, maybe or anything. I, I don't know. I think most of us have the intuition, though, that it didn't just start with us. Right. We certainly treat animals. We all we, almost all of us treat animals as if they're capable of suffering. Right. It's not like people who eat meat defend it by saying, well, they can't feel anything anyway. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's um, the, the uh, uh, what was I? Um, yeah. So anyway, th- this is I this is described in my 1988 book, Three Scientists uh, and Their Gods. <laughs> and, you know, one thing I'm kind of proud of is that David Chalmers read that when he was a graduate student and people familiar with his views. uh know that you know he he um was influenced he's well known for for related views the the um so uh yeah so so uh, evolution is this amazing machine for generating meaning and more and more meaning okay more complex organisms richer and richer uh forms of life um now i i should say and i i, I mean Pause just because I can hear some misunderstanding potentially from some sectors in the audience. When you say evolution is generating meaning, it's capital M meaning, meaning just the category of meaning itself, not specific forms of meaning. Or maybe not, maybe, well, maybe not personal and- forms of meaning. Because, like, you know, I, I can imagine someone saying, you know, I, I, I don't feel like the meaning of my life is determined by this algorithm. You know, there's, this, there's that conception. No, I just mean the, fa- the fact. If you agree with me that life without subjective experience, if we were just robots lacking sentience, that that kind of life would really lack fundamental meaning. Right. And that's what I meant by the category of meaning. Like, yeah, that's all I mean. I, I, don't, I don't mean like the comprehension of sentences, that kind of meaning. I mean meaning in the more moral, spiritual sense of like, why is life worth living mm-hmm. And why do we take moral questions seriously? And why is it worth talking about how we treat other people and animals? And, 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 and th- that's the, the kind of meaning I mean. Uh, and, and I'm saying, uh, you know, natural selection is this algorithm for generating more and more meaning. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we don't have a clue as to why. Now, I should say, you know, as to, as to how that came to be the case. I mean, we also don't quite understand how the initial strands of self-replicating information came to show up and do what they do, but that's kind of thought to be, you know, at least you can have hypotheses, you can have conjectures. Uh, the question of why there's subjective experience, that's a little more problematic. And, you know, I, I should say, separate from this and, and this, uh, I want to be careful about how I, I phrase this. I, I have argued that, um, there is reason to at least suspect and argue on behalf of the proposition that evolution has a larger purpose. There's a larger purpose unfolding. But I want to emphasize that um, that, that, that does not entail departure from a Darwinian conception of evolution, okay? If you think it does, then I should spend an hour talking to you and explaining why it doesn't, and it's it's subtle for some people. But but the main point is just material systems can have purpose. Uh, my thermostat 
has purpose. It's just a physical machine, but it has a goal, which is to keep which is to keep the the temperature constant. Um, you don't you don't have to be imparting uh, attributing spooky uh, forces or, or factors to things to um, to suggest that they may have a larger purpose. Um, and in fact, I could make an argument if there were not subjective experience, you could still argue that maybe evolution has some purpose. Now, the question of what imbued it with purpose, uh, was it a God? Was it some other kind of intelligent being? Was it aliens? Was it people from another universe? Could be any of those could even be, uh, in principle, purpose can be imbued by non, um, kind of by non-animate things. In other words, like an organism is a goal-directed thing. There's a sense in which a, uh, 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 an organism has a purpose, namely to get genes into the next generation, but it was not created by a uh, conscious creator or designer. It was just created by natural selection. There's just a process that happens to, for whatever reason, it, 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 uh, but for comprehensible reasons, in a sense, it imbues these machines called organisms with what you can call goals or purposes in a certain sense. And by the way, this is something I agree with Dan Dennett on. I, I, I mean, I agree that organisms can be described as having goals and purposes. Uh, I, I encourage people to Google my discussion with him about the other question of whether evolution has a purpose, because he kind of seems to agree or, or accept my argument and then uh, later said he didn't. But 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 that's in a way... Uh, a good the, the one conversation between me and him on YouTube, uh, if people want to explore this, mm -hmm. the logic of this, um, that might be illuminating. But I want to kind of bracket that because most of my worldview does not require that you accept that there could be a purpose to evolution. And I want to emphasize again, it's not the kind of purpose that would lead you to depart from a Darwinian conception of the mechanisms driving evolution. But I personally think the arguments on behalf of it are stronger than people, uh, some people acknowledge. Uh, the suggestion freaks some people out. Like Steve Pinker, I've, I've had this conversation with him on YouTube. He kind of gets triggered, I would say, by, 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 by this kind of talk um, in a way that I think he, he shouldn't, if he, if he understands clearly what the talk is. But... Um, but that's a, there are some people who are interested in questions of larger purpose, some people who aren't. Did, I think it, my worldview works for people who aren't. It, maybe it's richer for people who are. That's what I would say. But you are sympathetic. You, you yourself hold the idea. I suspect, yeah, if I had to bet, I would, I would bet there's something we don't understand about how natural selection came to be that explain some of the mysteries we've been talking about, namely the mystery of consciousness, and does entail, uh, and does ultimately lead to the conclusion that in some sense, natural selection has a purpose. Now, now to give you an idea of how far ranging the, diff the, 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 the things could be that imbued purpose, um, you know, Lee Smolin, the physicist, has this idea that maybe universes replicate, perhaps through black holes. Um, so there could be natural selection among universes. So what gets favored it, so you can imagine universes that create a lot of black holes get favored over time, right? They're good at reproducing. 
Now, you can also imagine scenarios where universes that uh, develop intelligent life uh, wind up with more black holes or for some other reason are better at reproducing. If that were the case, and I've discussed this with him, and he, and he says, yeah, in, in theory, this could be, uh, he, he gets exactly what I'm saying, that if you have self-replicating universes and those universes that, uh, that, that have intelligent life are better at replicating, then that is this kind of meta-natural selection thing that would lead to universes in which, yes, evolution can be said to have a purpose, if that makes sense. Whether it does or not, but my point is, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, that that if if evolution has a purpose, there is some god or something. Could be, could be an intelligent being, or could be we're in it. We're in a simulation. That would be another version of evolution having a purpose. If some, if the designer of the simulation said, you know, I think it would be cool if X Y Z created this algorithm of natural selection as part of the simulation's algorithm. That's another scenario. Okay, I'm ju I'm just saying that. Uh, there are re more reasons than I think people appreciate to suspect that some such scenario applies and evolution in some sense has a larger purpose. Wow. I feel like I should say, I guess you and I, you and I have never talked about this. I mean, it, it's kind of, it's in my book, non-zero. I don't spend enough time clarifying maybe all the points I've tried to clarify. I, I they, if you pay attention, I think they're kind of clarified, but, uh, I think we talked about this in an earlier a, one when we were when we were circling around. The let me say quickly that in a way, the best written resource on this is if you Google my New York Times piece, does evolution have a purpose or something like that? It was in the New York Times uh, in their uh, philosophy uh, blog called The Well. This No, The Stone. The stone. Um, and uh, that links to uh, an argument I put on meaningoflife.tv that is... And those two things together, the Times piece and then the elaboration and explanation in the essay I did on Meaning of Life TV, that's the clearest, most kind of schematic uh, argument for an attempt to clarify what I mean by the argument for purpose. I know this is somewhere in your worldview, I think, um, and maybe we may be ahead of where you want to bring this up, but I, 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 I feel like I've gotten a sense in talking to you now that part of what you part of the purpose is is that it's largely invisible to the the creatures that, that it has created um that 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 both natural selection non-zero sumness other elements that have evolved within natural selection these are that they are functioning below conscious um awareness uh, that, that they're well, they're invisible to us at least and that I, I, I feel like you recognize or I see that in order for us to, to avert apocalypse now, that, that to a certain degree, more people need to become conscious of this underlying invisible logic and, and in a sense, align, align to, and conform to it in a way to participate with it at, so to, to further its continuance. Does that yeah, sort of sit I right? Think I think I know what you're saying. And I want to say one more thing about evolution and what was and wasn't likely by way of uh, leading back to it, uh, which is if you think intelligent life of, of our kind 
was likely. That means you think you you, you get a, a smart creature that's making technologies and in other ways is generating what's called culture, which just means, you know, a, 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 a formative book for me was a book called The Evolution of Culture in Animals in, written by a, a professor of mine in college, uh, John Bonner. And, and, and it was about all the way these non-human animals, various non-human animals actually have culture, by which he just means the transmission of non-genetic information uh, from generation to generation. So like, uh, you know, like uh, some monkeys figure out a new way to wash potatoes. Yeah, recipes. And it spreads through the generation, right? Yeah. And uh, and the point, it heightened my appreciation that actually cultural evolution, which is, of course, most robust and impressive in our species because it accounts for everything from technology to music to religion to science to all the stuff that's not strictly in our genes um, was actually, a, a, you know, again, it, 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 this depends on believing that that the eventual advent of, of intelligent life was likely. But um, but you you see that it was not an unlikely outcome. And 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 if you believe, as I argue, non-zero, that that kind of human cultural evolution starts having its own impetus, right? That has the effect of carrying social organization to higher and higher levels pretty inexorably. Okay, so biological evolution has, I would say pretty inexorably, led life to higher and higher levels of organization, cells, multi-celled life, more and more complex behaviors, societies of multi-celled animals, that's another level. And then cultural evolution carries human societies from like, hunter-gatherer level of organization complexity to, you know, uh, chiefdoms, ancient city-states, nations, empires. Now we're on the verge of having a global community. So if you put all this together and you see all of this as a kind of a flowering of a single seed, which is the algorithm of natural selection, that's kind of mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and people may think of, uh, you know, there've been kind of mystical versions of this vision that people might see isn't, isn't strictly, you know, scientific materialism or, or strictly Darwinian, like the, the, the Catholic mystic Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, leave aside whether he did or did not comply with a Darwinian conception of evolution. There's disagreement over that. The, the point is his vision of, whoa, uh, you know, we're now building a giant global brain. He was saying this a century ago, and this is in a way a natural expression of evolution itself. You know, we're almost carrying, uh, you know, the, the whole planet is almost turning into a single organism. Um, that, that, that vision has been had by a number of people. And, and I'm saying that you can argue by looking within a scientific framework that this was a, a not all that unlikely outcome. Uh, it, it's not completely crazy to view the algorithm of natural selection as a seed for a global brain. Okay. Now, doesn't mean it was inevitable. There are lots of seeds that don't succeed in becoming flowers, but they're still seeds because under certain circumstances, they have a high likelihood of turning into a flower. And as a technical matter, whether you think it's fair to call the algorithm a seed for a, a giant global brain, uh, probably does depend on whether you 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 accept the argument that maybe there is a larger uh, purpose unfolding through evolution. But in any event, my argument is that 
this algorithm uh, was likely to get us to this amazing place we are, which is on the verge of global community. And I think crossing the threshold to the global community requires certain things of us. If we don't want to blow the planet up, if we don't want to dissolve into, into fighting and chaos, that requires certain things of us. Um, and that is kind of the heart of my, my dharma, my worldview is like, uh, is, is that we should all ask, um, well, I would encourage us to ask, uh, like, how do I need to maybe change the way I'm living or thinking if I'm going to do my part to, to, uh, increase the chances that this whole experiment flourishes and we do cross the threshold into global community and don't dissolve into fighting and chaos, blow the whole thing up with nuclear weapons, uh, you know, destroy the environment, uh, via climate change and other things. Um, so, so, so I, I think, I, I, I believe it or not, I think that takes us to the threshold of what you were saying, but go ahead. Right. Yeah. And so we're at that threshold. And if you were to, to fast forward, say a hundred years or 200 years and imagine yourself a, a future as a future historian, looking back at this moment, um, I think in one of maybe in non-zero, you said that, that there needs to be a, something that a, like a historian would refer to as a revolution of sorts, whether it's a revolution of human psychology, consciousness, or attributes within those that 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 allow the species to cross the threshold into a global community. You know, I know we've talked about it a little bit here or there, but what what kind of what would constitute that that revolution? Well, the funny thing is, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have to invent it because I think variants of it have been around. Um, as you know, I mean, you, something you and I have in common is an interest in the Dharma in the Buddhist sense of the term and the, the belief that uh, certain forms of meditative practice, I would say notably mindfulness, um, the cultivation of mindfulness through meditation is one thing that helps us, uh, that can help us all do our part, uh, to kind of save the world. Um, and to get back to the, the question you were asking, uh, now I'm not saying that's the only path. Th there are lots of ways, uh, to do this. They don't have to involve a, a Buddhist context. Uh, I, I don't think they have to involve meditation. I personally think it's a very helpful tool, but I think uh, the, generically, the thing that is required is that, you know, we all get better at, at transcending the distortions of thought and perception that were built into us by natural selection because they were good at getting genes transmitted in a very different environment. And actually, some of them can get your genes transmitted now. It's just that if you'd want to take the long view, like our genes surviving another 2000 years, these, these tendencies, these cognitive, I would say distortions, um, are, are not, are not going to be helpful. And one way or another, we need to get better at transcending them. And, you know, that includes what's, well, sometimes called the psychology of tribalism. There are problems with the term tribalism, but 
uh, it's kind of become the standard term. And uh, I think of it as involving these various cognitive biases, including uh, confirmation bias, attribution error, uh, which were actually built into us by natural selection because they helped individuals get their genes spread. And to get back to something I think you were saying earlier, I mean, we, we are not designed to be conscious of of what is from natural selection's quote point of view, our purpose. We're, we're not designed to be conscious of the fact that we are, you know, gene proliferating machines by design. And, uh, and, and we're not designed to be conscious of the distortions of cognition that are part of the machinery for propagating genes. I mean, that's definitionally true. A distortion of your cognition is something you're not aware of. Um, so I don't know, maybe you should intervene at this point. I may have. Uh... Yeah, there's, I mean, so we've, you've been talking about natural selection as the, the seed that can, and it's not unlikely that it has led to this emergence of what we now know, see ourselves as, as a, a, a civilization on a, on a planet, the Goldilocks zone, where we're on the threshold of a, a kind of gl global community. Like we've, we've, we're, we're forms of, of, of societal evolution, cultural evolution have sort of gotten people, individuals to, to, to grow and expand their sense of identity, um, in different, uh, different ways that it's moving towards this, this broader perception of a, of a global um, village or global community sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 but there, there's something, and I think I wanted to ask you about this more because there, there, there's like a paradox built into it, which you're just, which you were just speaking about how um, there may be things that are selected for in the evolutionary process that actually stand as impediments to the transcendence that right. you're, that you're advocating. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a thing called mismatch theory that's all about uh, ways, the mismatch between the environment we were designed for, by and large, a, a small hunter-gatherer society, and the, and the environment we're living in, with like Facebook and cars and stuff, the mismatch between those two creates a lot of human suffering, first of all, like anxiety disorder. You know, anxiety is a natural thing built into us, but it it, it doesn't so often reach pathological levels in, a, in, a, in, in like a hunter-gatherer village as it can here. Same with depression, same with unipolar, at least, depression. Hmm. Um, the, the uh, and that's, in a way, a, a side note, because I think your point is more about the fact that these, uh, some of these things that are built into us, uh, some of the mismatch between our, 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 our modern environment and the environment we were designed for bode ill for the survival of civilization, okay? But I think the good news is the connection between these two aspects of mismatch. In other words, to a large extent, I think by, by recognizing the mismatch in ways that reduce our suffering, we can also increase the chances for civilization, okay? I think the things required to save the world to a large extent are things that are conducive to mental health, 
And uh, what if you want to, you know, get fuzzy, you could call spiritual growth. But in any event, uh, I think, you know, kind of saving the world and saving ourselves, even just in the sense of, of being happier, more fulfilled people, to some extent naturally align. And I think that's good news, if true. Yeah. And then maybe there is a, as you're saying that, the question formed in my head that with cultural evolution, there's the environment itself seems to have amplified exponentially the way that evolutionary traits interact with the environment, producing negative experiences. So that like, I'm I'm just thinking of like social media technology, like the digital technology and the correlated spike in anxiety, depression amongst people who are on those platforms regularly. So there's a way that the the technological evolution itself is exacerbating. It seems to be exacerbating the, the, uh, the negative symptoms uh, that plague plague people f- from these evolutionary traits, and 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 be- and within that there might there will be I would I would imagine a, a sort of a, a seeking of the door out. What's what's the door out of that 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 exacerbation and inflammation of painful anxiety depression. Well, I mean, I you you know you uh, we're, we we're both you and I are both mindfulness advocates. I think that's a, a part of it, and it, it's a good example because. Um, but does that make what, even what I'm saying? Does that I, I as I'm saying, I'm like, does this hold water from your end? Does that make sense to you? I think. I mean, do you want do you want to say it one one more time in its maximally pithy form? And, <laughs> and see if I sure, well, or? just that okay. Technological evolution has. I, 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 to me, it seems like it's exacerbated the kinds of psychological conditions that are unpleasant, anxiety, depression being two. And, yeah. um, and those, as you were just saying, those, those, those states, anxiety, depression may have had an evolutionary advantage at one in, in, in an ancestral environment, but in the, in the current environment, it, they, those traits or those characteristics of our, of our personality psychology are just kind of getting enervated through the, the environmental interaction with those traits. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I would emphasize that, you know, through technological and cultural evolution, we try to keep adjusting for the problems created by technological and cultural evolution, right? I mean, it's not just a it's not just a thing that's a, an out of control thing where our environment uh, gets, you know, more and more at odds with our well-being and social harmony. It's like we see, we try to adjust to the problems created. It's not like, I mean, remember, humans decide what technologies flourish, right? It's like you could invent a technology like a helmet I wear and every three seconds it jabs a pencil into my ear, but there's just no market for that technology, right? I mean, so there is right away a, a selective mechanism in technological evolution. But that said, yeah, it, it happens that uh, technologies that people accept and adopt wind up causing problems, either for other people in society or, or ultimately for themselves. And, you know, social media is a good example. But, but, but uh, 
and may I don't know how responsive this is. Uh, well, I guess I guess question, I guess it, it it's bringing in, and I, this may be naive of me, but it 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 it's bringing an array of, of optimism in the sense that if the if the symptomatology gets bad enough, people are going to to look for uh, sustainable solutions. So yeah, I, I I mean this is one thing spiritual traditions do, for example, you know uh, the Buddha. Uh, explicitly, according to tradition, diagnosed. Uh, it was a problem with the human condition, but actually it was a problem with the human condition that was exacerbated by, in a certain sense, technological development. Okay? He was not living in a hunter-gatherer society. He, he was, according to tradition, a person who, by virtue of the agrarian revolution and and uh, and various other things, a person who had access uh, to, um, to new forms of gratification and, and the possibility of excess of certain kinds of gratification uh, was open to him. And to some extent, you can see uh, the Dharma as, uh, as you know, representing, among other things, a way to handle the, the, the problem of excessive uh, self-indulgence. Um, so uh, I'm not saying that's all it was. There are problems with the human condition that are just problems with the human condition. Hunter-gatherer societies have problems. They have, there are psychological problems and so on. Because, you know, remember, natural selection doesn't naturally make us happy to begin with. That's not its goal, to make us happy. It's just to get our genes in the next generation. If that entails suffering on our part, then suffering... Uh, there will be. We will be designed to periodically suffer. And that's a big part of the Buddha's diagnosis is just to understand that, uh, you know, even in a hunter-gatherer society, our, our relentless pursuit of gratification, food, sex, you know, what, what we can get, will, will lead to recurring dissatisfaction. We, we will always want more. The, 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 the gratification will dissipate. The happiness will evaporate. And we will want more. Um, but in any event, uh, yeah, I mean, the, within spiritual traditions, we try to solve the problems that, uh, are inherent in, in the human condition and also problems that are created by cultural evolution itself. Um, pharmacology tries to solve those problems, sometimes creating other problems. Psychiatrists try to solve those problems. Uh, friends try to help one another solve those problems. Self-help groups try to solve, you know, self-help books. Culture does, you know, tries to solve its problems. And I think the solutions, you know, can often be found within a lot of different traditions. I'm sure Jordan Peterson is saying helpful things. I haven't read much of his stuff. I'm sure he's saying some things I might not consider helpful, but, uh, you know, Sam Harris is saying some helpful things. Well, they're just, they're, you know, there's a they're lot definitely of striking between his world. Yeah, they're definitely striking a chord. Um, and you could, like, the anthropologists and you say, "What need are they filling? What, what, like in their audience? What, what, what is the message that is filling a void?" Right. Well, Sam's message is is to some extent a pretty traditional one. He draws, you know, on the Dharma, uh, the Buddha's Dharma. Um, and then says other things. Jordan Peterson, uh, of course, is to a certain extent framing himself within uh, Western 
religious tradition, although in a, in a, in a way that some people find vaguer than is satisfying. But I would say one term he uses, the logos, you know, I've kind of been describing my version of the logos, right? I mean, the logos uh, in, in, in Greek uh, philosophy is this idea that there is a kind of a, a logic unfolding through history. This is one, one way to describe one variant of the logos within Greek philosophy. Um, and that's what I would say. I, I would say there is a logic that is unleashed by the algorithm of natural selection that largely involves an interplay of zero-sum and non-zero-sum dynamics, uh, and that pretty naturally leads us to something like where we are. That doesn't mean that I thought it was very likely that the you know you would find a species that looks exactly like humans, but yeah, an intelligent species that would lead the world uh, toward global social organization. I per personally think is not unlikely, and you can call that uh, a logos of. Uh, of sorts, a kind of logic that's been driving us to this point. I mean, a little interesting footnote to some people is that, you know, in the, uh, in the book of John, when it says in the beginning was the word, the word for word in the Greek, in the original Greek is logos. So that is a reference to Greek philosophy. That is, that is, is kind of saying that God and, 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 and Jesus, same thing in Christian theology, of course, um, are well, what does it say? It says the word the lo, the word was the word was with God and the word was God. Is that what it says? The logos was with God, the logos was God, whatever. There, there is an infusion of Greek philosophy in parts of the New Testament. Um, and you know, Peterson is picking up on that. I, I don't know honestly exactly what he means by logos. I I when I hear him talk, I have trouble pinning down exactly what he means by things generally sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um but this is my conception of the logos and, 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 and very much informed by the possibility that yes, there is a larger purpose unfolding here. And the logos is, is its manifestation. It's a kind of logic in a non-fuzzy sense, I would say. It's kind of logic embodied in the material fact of self-replicating strands of information. Yeah, it's not. It, and the rest, as they, the rest, as they say, is It's history. not the most romantic definition of purpose. Uh, well, you can only be so picky in, in the modern scientific world. I, right. Um, so, I mean, and do you see non-zero sumness as a kind of a, a feature of natural selection, like a, a facet of it or a, like a part of the, the, the DNA, the encoding of it? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I was just having a conversation with Steve Pinker on my on my my podcast on this podcast, the Right Show, and uh, he had written a book about kind of logic and reason. You know, and he sees logic as something that's kind of built into the universe, and 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 exists. I hope this is an accurate representation of what he'd say in a kind of in a kind of Platonic realm, right? In this kind of uh, you can't point to it anywhere in the universe but it infuses the universe. You know, in other words, we live in a logical universe where logic obtains. I'm, it's not that easy to imagine a universe that doesn't. Then again, we're creatures of this one. So maybe, you know, our imaginations just aren't good enough. But, I, and I was saying there's a sense in which 
That is part of the environment of human evolution, a universe in which logic applies. And human evolution, we have kind of discovered logic. We have, we have become creatures that can discover actual principles of logic, formal logic. And, and that, I think both Steve and I would say that that's uh, partly because a logical universe is the environment of human evolution. I would say somewhat the same thing about zero-sum and non-zero-sum logic, those aspects of logic. We live in a universe in which those dynamics, those principles exist, right? In which uh, two entities can come together and uh, create more than the sum of their parts. That's one thing non-zero-sum interaction permits. Permits two humans to come together and through division of labor, cooperation, permit produce more in the aggregate than either of them could produce, uh, than the sum of what they could produce uh, independently, acting on their own, it's a it's a kind of a magical thing that that uh, that that non-zero sum logic uh, lets you create more than the sum of your parts. But anyway, I I think those are parts of the unit. They're, they're they're in some sense I can't quite conceive. They're parts of the fabric of reality, and they have this is very much governed or you know at least shaped evolution on Earth. That's what evolution is. It's the interplay of zero sum and non-zero sum dynamics. The zero sumness grows largely out of the fact that uh, organisms compete with one another for uh, in the genetic proliferation sweepstakes because it's a world of of finite resources. They can't all they can't all win, but playing that game leads them to harness non zero sum logic. So a, a given genome, your genome is is a, is an elaborately cooperative mechanism. All your, your genes are like cooperating with each other to build you. That's non-zero sum. And then humans cooperate within societies to build things. That's non-zero sum. And all of this non-zero sumness, I would say, is a, you know, in a generic sense, a kind of inevitable expression of the, of the, the zero sum uh, fact that drives, uh, you know, uh, the fact of competition among entities. And that this was all intrinsic in the first self-replicating strands of. Uh, I think I found a passage else. at the end of non-zero that summarizes what you just said. Um, so as I reflect back, I'm going to reflect your own words back to you and, and see if I'm on the, on the hearing you correctly. You say, I think you're speaking about non-zero sumness. You said it is grounded in the basic paradox of creation. Non-zero sumness, wondrous though it is, was created by and for zero sumness, and is this nat and is this naturally and sorry and is this naturally prone to malicious use? Or I think you I miscopied uh, it. It should be and is thus naturally prone to mis malicious use. Oh yeah. So it, so yeah, an example of that would be when societies cooperate through non-zero-sum logic to wage war on another society, right? It, it, it can, non-zero-sumness can be put to, to nasty uses. It, it, it was to no small extent designed for that, but by, by, by natural selection, mm -hmm. I mean. Um, right. So, uh, so, so many yeah. of the historical uh, common instances of non-zero-sum 
a dynamic working is usually driven by the presence of an animate threat, right? So, so two societies banding together to 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 to, to war, go war, go to war against a, a, another tribe, for example. Right. I mean, yeah. If you want to jump to where we are right now, this is a a, a challenge we face. Is that, um, you know, you can say that all along. Um, human societies, the non-zero sumness within a human society, like the, the, the economic cooperation, the, the, you know, the various forms of cooperation people do has often, not only, but often been the product of a perceived external threat. Okay. It's not the only reason people cooperate by any means. It's not the only, uh, stimulus of cooperation uh, and, and of more elaborate forms of crea- uh, cooperation, but it's a big one. Societies have been at war with one another. They perceive threats that has led them to uh, become more internally efficient. And, and, and that involves often some non-zero sumness. We once again now as a global community face a situation where the perception of threats should logically lead us to, to uh, interact in more non-zero sum cooperative ways. Um, you know, climate change should logically lead to global cooperation. It's a very complex non-zero-sum problem with with a a non-trivial solution, but there is a a non-zero-sum solution imaginable. Uh, But the the problem is natural selection designed us to be more attentive to threats in the form of like animate threats, like other groups of people trying to kill us, other people trying to kill us. That's super galvanized, Mm -hmm. right? And you see that in politics. Nothing is better for a politician who wants to galvanize a society than saying there are these bad people who want to get you. You know whether it's uh, or, or pose a threat to you. Mm-hmm. There are these criminals in your neighborhood. There are these people coming across the border. There's this Soviet empire. There's this this or that. And that's not to say that these things are never have any accuracy at all. There are real threats. But um, the fact that politicians so often overstate the threats is a tribute to how powerful the human perception of a, of, a, of a human threat is as a galvanizing force. And now we need to be galvanized at a global level by real threats and, and, uh, that are coming in different forms. They're not global, you know, climate change is not alien space invaders. And neither is the threat of biological weapons, which is another reason we need to get together and 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 work on a on a good biological weapons treaty. Um, I mean, you can kind of. Well, anyway, uh, I mean, biological weapons would be deployed by human beings, and I guess you can scare people that way. But that kind of scaring tends to lead to counterproductive reactions. so anyway, yeah, I think you're you're pointing to that challenge. And and I think it's one reason we can't rely on the traditional means of achieving social coherence, right? The traditional means involve a lot of like those those humans are coming after us and that's not what's happening now. That 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 perceived threat, I mean the exaggeration of that threat gets in the way of doing what we need to do. 
right? Mm-hmm. That, that is the great impediment now. If you ask, you know, why are governments not doing a good job of cooperating on climate change? One reason is they're spending so much time uh, trying to convince their people to be afraid of, of one another, uh, of, of, of other governments. And again, it's not to say there aren't any real threats out there. It's just to say there's an incentive for politicians to exaggerate them. There's an incentive for journalists to exaggerate. And uh, so that, you know, and I, and I think that's one reason that as extreme as it sounds, uh, and by the way, uh, politicians harness a perception of internal threats, right? Republicans warn about socialists. Democrats warn against about Republican fascists and so on. Again, not that all this is completely crazy, but uh, it, it impedes the kind of coherence you need to solve problems. And, and all of this is why what sounds like an extreme solution, like mindfulness is an extreme solution. I don't think, you know, and I, again, I'm not saying it's the only solution, but it's a path I think it's good for a lot of us to try to pursue. When you think about it, it's an extreme solution. It's like, wait, humankind didn't have to sit down and meditate to get where we are, Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of extreme, you know, or or to really seriously examine the the biases that are built into us. We We didn't have to do that to reach the national level of organization, right? It just kind of happened. Well, that's true, but... But but at those levels of organization, just the galvanizing force can just be, uh, you know, the perception of a regular threat and you can respond to it viscerally. And that kind of works for purposes of national cohesion. It's not going to work at the, at the global level unless we actually get invaded by aliens, um, which is probably not going to happen. And, 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 and so I think in an environment with lacking that kind of externally galvanizing threat, uh, we, we need to find ways to encourage people to become more aware of, uh, of the co- cognitive biases and, and the parts of human nature that, among other things, make them vulnerable to these politicians who are trying to terrify them about other groups, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that's... Uh, Again, I think the good news is developing the tools that make you more resistant to those kinds of politicians and other things we need to be resistant to can make you a happier, more fulfilled person. That's good news, but it's still pretty challenging, uh, you know, for all of us, for all of us to, uh, you know, even those of us who profess to be acutely aware of of the problem that we're describing and that we think is an, uh, and we think we have an accurate diagnosis. It's hard for all of us. A few sentences back, you were saying, you know, if people could be less uh, vulnerable to the, the outsized projection of threats from certain politics or from politicians, does that sound kind of what you were saying as part of the solution? Yeah. 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 If we would be uh, right, less, less, uh, less vulnerable to uh, various people who want to exploit us and, and people on social media in our tribe who want to uh, convince us that the other tribe is more contemptible than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to all kinds of manipula and people who are 
you know, building up their Twitter followings by parasitizing our brains and further warping our perception. We need to resist them. These people in our own tribes, we need to rebel. Mm -hmm. There's, I had an experience recently, not to get too down the rabbit hole of a tangent, but I had an experience of going to a high school soccer game in the pouring rain. And it was no score for most of the game. I think in the early in the second half, the opposite team or the enemy team, you should, I should say, scored, Absolutely. scored a goal. The, the goalie's father, who <clears throat> was on the team that I supported, was standing nearby me. I didn't know this man, but he immediately started screaming at the ref saying that was offsides. And then his son also started hitting the, his fists against the goalpost. Like that was offsides, a bullshit call. And before I knew it, I was also yelling at the ref. <laughs> and, yeah. and, I, and, it, and, and, and it took me a while to, to think back to this, because this is an example of attribution error here that, you know, a, I was in a new context for myself. I was in a new social setting. I didn't really know people. I was sort of there under strange circumstances. And um, and I wanted to fit in. And then to see this injustice on the field that that the guy next to me was yelling about, I it it, right. it I realized a couple of days later, A, I was wrong. And and even the players on the team that I was supporting said, no, 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 there wasn't, there was no offsides there. But it felt, and, and this made me think of you immediately, is that it, it felt good. To, to actually sure. have a wrong perception. Sure. And I think... To feel that, yeah. And I think that's kind of the... Fe the Feeling aggrieved feels good. I know it well. I'm, I'm, I'm a deeply aggrieved person. Um, I could go on all day about my grievances. But, it, you know, you talked about feelings. We've talked about feelings a little bit. But I don't think we've, we've talked about negative feelings, the feelings of discomfort that drive behavior in, in a certain direction. But I am maybe necessarily heard you speak to the the hook of the kind of the 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 good feeling that comes from this kind of bias that that locks us into the it doesn't yeah. mean you guys to question it yeah i want to quickly say i saw a sign uh, th this is by way of talking about how subtle i think the challenge is the challenge of good conduct on social media is it was a sign that somebody had put up at a kid's soccer thing and it said, reminder, uh, these are just kids. Uh, coach, the coaches are doing their best. The referees are humans. That's all good. I thought the mistake was the last thing. And it said, and your child is not playing major league soccer. Now, that was funny. And it helped this thing spread on social media. But I thought it's like that last thing some people are going to take as a dig, right? It's like. That's, that's a mistake. I think that's a subtle mistake in the messaging is to, is to start kind of saying like, I'm making fun of you for taking this too seriously. That's what that last thing, your kid is not playing major, you know, th that, that. Yeah, there's a I, sanctimonious think, message of just relax, get like, take it easy, take it, take a deep breath. Right, right. The first part, the first three sounded like the, the earnest and fine and, 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 and they should have just shut up then. And, and, uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, but the, the anyway, the uh, so where was I? You, um, uh, but I am suggesting that we all need to be. Is it, again, that's that made the thing more viral. That's the reason I saw it. It spread on social media because everybody's going like, "Yeah, these soccer parents are assholes." Okay, but that sign is also saying to soccer parents, "You are an asshole," 
and 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 that makes them less likely to obey uh, the guidance of the sign. Anyway, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, we were. Uh, you. The, wait, what did you? The hook of, that I of good feelings. The, the how good it feels oh, yeah. to be wrong. Right. It's like uh, what what was the Buddhist term for anger? Oh, the the honey. What is the something about the? I, there was a phrase I don't I poison root the honey honey taste and poison root or something it's something it's a recognition that like uh, uh, anyway anger and there's something about anger and hatred that feel good you there's know a thousand ways and, there's a thousand ways to lick honey off of razors yeah that's disgusting <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say that something something uh, similar though and it, that was turned into a lyric that a that a Buddhist inspired folk rocker came up with okay. but it's it's similar. Um, oh, I can't even talk now. That's so disturbing. Um, anyway, the, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, that that's the other thing is that, you know, people think of mindfulness as like just boring. I mean, it's fun to get upset. It's fun to feel grieved. It's fun to think the ref was wrong, kind of. And it's really gratifying when, the, if the call is reversed, all that's fun. I'm not even arguing against all of it. I, but but I I think th there's also I guess I I think the mistake is for people to think the calm that you're trying to cultivate with meditation is not a rich experience in itself. If you know what I mean, it, 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 that it's a, that, it, that there's a tendency for people to think it's just a dulling of the amplitude. It's just a lowering of the amplitude of the good and the bad. Um, you know, okay, less extreme anxiety, less depression, less extreme joy, less extreme pleasure. And, um, I think that's not the case. I, I, I think, um, yeah, there is less extreme depression and anxiety and there's certain kinds of thrills that may not be there, but there's, there can be extremely intense joy and aesthetic uh, pleasure and even sensory pleasure, richer sensory pleasure in, in ways that I think, um, people, people don't, uh, that's kind of a tangent that was just, um, triggered by what you said. Yeah. You know, and then and a further tangent to that is that, you know, a lot of people think of maybe joy being like a, kind of having a specific set of criteria that, that signify it. Um, and that, you know, that there's excitement, there's buzz, there's rapture, there's, there's, uh, I don't know what else you could add to that. But as you're saying that I was thinking how in, in, in Buddhist description of Samadhi states where they describe, um, kind of the factors of mind that are present within the different states of Samadhi, uh, as, as, as the practitioner, I'm, and I am not an adept at this by any means, I'm just going by what I've read and sort of loosely try to correlate with my own experiences. But um, within the deepening of samadhi, which is kind of a, a deepening of stillness, a deepening of calm, certain factors do fall away. So like there's a, initially there might be a real sense of joy and blissful buzz or excitement, you know, a, a real energetic state within the samadhi. But then that sort of falls off. It's like a launching rocket that falls off the, 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 the shuttle and and then there are other states that remain like happiness and and equanimity um but then even you know further down the road happiness falls away so there's a there's a there's a, there's a layer of and i'm not exactly how they short sure how they qualify that happiness but 
there's an idea that there's deeper stages of joy that aren't so much about, you know, the same kind of in the world rapturous joy or excitement that we, we tend to associate with. And it's, it's, if you haven't tasted that, you know, like if you think like one way of summarizing what I'm trying to say is, you know, I remember hearing a monk in the Thai forest tradition say, you know, people think that monks and monastics and nuns have sort of foregone sensual pleasure as, as, as some sort of, uh, sacrifice and self-mortification thing but from the inside the interior the experience of it is like there's there's a there's a level of calm and a level of equanimity and a level of peace that that well, is that is in, that is indescribable I'm, a good example is at the insight meditation society where we've both done retreats um you know first time i walked in the dining hall i was like why are so many people eating with their eyes closed that seems strange. I eat with my eyes open. And then by like four or five days into the retreat, I'm doing it too. And the reason is that, and, and this isn't even the kind of food that generally excites me. Okay. I mean, it's very well-prepared vegetarian food, you know, and, and I try basically not, not to eat meat uh, by and large. Uh, uh, well, it's a complex, I'm, I'm, I'm a modestly guilty, uh, pescatarian by and large who tries to eat only only wild uh, food and so on but that aside that confession aside um this is veg it's not the kind of food that would excite me it's like salads and it's it's vegetarian and i mean it is such a deeply pleasurable sensory experience that i was doing it too i'm closing my mind my eyes and just luxuriating in the taste of things that I normally wouldn't eat, even look forward to eating, okay? And it's the same with just uh, visual beauty when you're in kind of the depths of a retreat. And as I always say, look, as a practical matter, you're going to have trouble hanging on to this state of consciousness in its full form after the retreat. At the same time, some meditation practice can uh, enable you to better enjoy experiences like this. And, um, it's, it's almost, it's almost indescribable. I'm sorry, but, 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 you know, the idea of completely immersing yourself into the like crunching of a single sesame seed or something, I know it sounds boring. I'm telling you kind of like sex. Well, no, I think we've even used this phrase or I've tried to use this phrase that there's a non, uh, there's a non-sexual sens sensuality to many aspects of life. You could even say, I don't want to get, you know, cleaning the toilet bowl can have a, <laughs> a non- Here you're on your own. Here you're on your well, own, not, Josh. I haven't gotten it. Well, you know, I've never, been, I've never had that duty at a retreat. We should say at some retreats, everybody gets a little job to keep the cost of the retreat down. I've never, I've never had that job and I've always hoped I wouldn't, but go ahead. I was actually my very first retreat. The friend I showed up with, he was assigned that and then balked at it <laughs> and said, yeah, I didn't come here to clean toilets. And I'm thinking, well, that's the whole point. Anyway, you know, you, you, you haven't done a retreat until you've cleaned toilets. Well, then I haven't done a retreat um, and I hope to never do a retreat. <laughs> but the, but I think what you're getting at is that there's a, and I, you've written about this in, in why Buddhism is true, but there's a, there's a correlation with the amount of, awareness you are bringing to your experience and the appreciation of the beauty 
that's rendered from that experience. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, and that's an interesting thing that, that when there's less distortion around liking or disliking and, and just a, a, a baseline pr presence that, that yeah. things start to, to become richer. And, and, you know, this involves, uh, the irony is it involves being less judgmental in a broad sense. You know, it involves it, like, like, like less of saying, Ooh, cleaning a toilet, gross. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, notwithstanding my little remarks about cleaning toilets, uh, the fact is that in the course of a treat, you, you reduce the extent of, of those little kinds of judgments. I mean, that's fundamental to the thing is that you try to drop, uh, your aversions to various things that normally you find, uh, unpleasant. You know, I mean the, my, uh, my own extreme case on a retreat was when I had an ab, you know, I developed an abscess tooth on the retreat and, you know, was feeling pain when I had liquids. And I, uh, this was in the course of like a two week retreat. So I was probably pretty far into the retreat and was pretty darn good at meditating at that point, if I do say so myself. And I, so I met just for fun, I meditated, you know, for like half an hour, then drank the liquid that was going to cause the deep tooth pain. And, you know, it wasn't entirely a bad thing. I mean, it kind of fluctuated between, oh, yeah, this is pain and it really isn't. But when it wasn't, it was this grand and kind of beautiful thing. The wave of pain you could even stand back from and see as this uh, beautiful thing. I, I, I don't mean that was 100% of the experience. There were parts of it where I thought, ooh, gross pain. But um, but the point is, you're, 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 you know, in dropping your aversion your versions, you're, you're dropping your judgment of everyday things. And yes, that does has, have, uh, uh, that does translate into being less judgmental of human beings. The other one's on the retreat, you know, when things are going well, but the irony is the one you point to is like, you wound up having a lot of stuff where you're going, wow, that's great. You know, I mean, you know, you just wouldn't think that you would wind up with a net positive experience, right? If you try to quit judging everything as good or bad. And, and, and you would think that, that it would be a kind of dullness, but it's the opposite of that. Yeah. And I, I mean, we can um, quibble about whether you're quitting the judgment or you're, you're the, the judgment stopping or you're changing your relationship to how you engage with the judgment. I mean, I, I still feel like the judgments arise. It's just that they don't impinge or they don't grab you. Right. They, right. They don't. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I think there are, there are technical discussions to be had about, uh, what's going on. Um, but I think, uh, uh um, judgment plays uh, a less, less determining role in, in your, in your consciousness. And behavior, mm -hmm. I would say. So I, I mean, I'm trying to let you guide the ship a little bit in terms well, of where, mean, where do you think this, that we should continue on with the, the broader worldview at this point? The Dharma Bob. I think we've cut, feels like we've covered a lot of ground and like, uh, my coffee is deserting me. Um, so I hope we have, I, I, I mean, there's a whole political dimension to my own worldview that's related, it, uh, about the need for, you know, policies at the level of international governance. Uh, you know, there's a need for political 
organization to, to some extent, move to that level with all due, uh, you know, concern about the dangers of, of, of actually concentrating power in a single place at the global level. And I think you do want to, that's why I don't use the term world government, but um, I think we need more international governance. It, it's in the interest of nations to do that, you know, only to the extent that it is in their interest, should they, um, you know, uh, be willing to uh, make, make the uh, whatever sacrifices of, of sovereignty that requires, and I would say ultimately they're not sacrifices of sovereignty, they're recognitions that given the direction of technological evolution, uh, nations to preserve their sovereignty in the sense of control over their own destiny, they need to engage in, in certain agreements with other nations that are, that are binding. Um, and I have a corresponding critique of American foreign policy as uh, impeding this evolution. Um, That's your... It's not all it does, but but it does a certain amount of that. So there's a whole political dimension of my worldview. Um, you, you, we've covered a lot of world ground, a, a, a lot we, of ground. You recently wrote a newsletter about tribalism, and towards the end of it, you tried to, I think, draft a potential definition that you like around what what does it mean to be tribal. Um, yeah. And I it it raised a question for me that actually ties back to the kind of the mindfulness issue of being judgmental or, or non-judgmental. Um, so I want to see if I can get this out. But you wrote that you are being tribal when your identification with a group or the cause it embodies creates dis, uh, distortions of thoughts and perceptions that lead to behaviors that heighten antagonisms with other groups. Right? Yeah. And I, I think the... The thing that I, the question that came up with was that, you know, so if the outcome of what you do fuels antagonism in another group, that, 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 that's putting, that's by definition, by what you're saying, that making you, your action, a tribal action, well, right? Well, actually, I mean, I, 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 I was tempted to add two footnotes. I, I to say note that I'm saying that it's when the antagonism is caused by distortion. Uh, I'm not saying that, first of all, cognitive distortion is always bad. There are perfectly harmless, you know, like uh, having a non-objective uh, view of my daughters is sometimes a perfectly fine thing, you know. Having a non-objective view of friends uh, can be a perfectly fine thing. These things that facilitate, uh, you know, esprit de corps and so on, like not dwelling on their bad side or whatever, you know, something less than completely objective uh, perception can be a fine thing in itself. Antagonism with a group can be defensible. There are bad groups. Antagonism toward uh, Hitler's regime, mm -hmm. I would defend. What I'm saying is that it's when the antagonism is actually based on a distortion um, that uh, it, it's bad. And the distortion is bad when it creates needless or counterproductive antagonism. So the so it's, uh, it's the two things. Assessing what, what constitutes distortion when it's based on distortion. 
Is this is like is based on distortion in the eye of the beholder? Well, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I think there is uh, such a thing as objective truth. Not that any of us is in entire possession of it, but it's kind of out there as this ideal. There, there is, in principle, a God's eye view of the world. <clears throat> there is, you know, it, it's an interesting question. Like, if you imagine just space aliens who had no dog in this fight, and they came down and started uh, observing these warring tribes, Right. And they were even able to learn everything about the origin of these fights. Would they, would they say, uh, yeah, everybody whose side America is on, yeah, those are the good guys. Um, I kind of doubt it. I mean, I, I, and, and I think, um, and, and I think we can aspire to something closer to an objective view of our situation. Um, but yeah, as a practical matter, is it problematic? Sure, because we're these very finite creatures with these uh, distorted um, mechanisms of cognition and perception. And I think both you and I are aware of people who, yeah, you know, it's not like mindfulness or meditation is a surefire cure. We are both aware of people who we think have probably gone to great depths of meditative accomplishment and have reached levels of stillness that you and I haven't reached, and yet they use their meditative prowess to exploit people. Mm. Um, so it's not an easy thing to figure out at all. Um, yeah, and I guess the, 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 where I, I'm going I, with this question, I mean, or this line of question, is that <clears throat> I got the sense that you were trying to almost draft a doctrine of anti-tribalism. Yeah, uh, I would like to, uh, I mean, something I'd like to do with the newsletter, the non-zero newsletter, is um, come up with kind of rules for evaluating, like uh, like conduct on social media, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, when is a tweet, a tribal tweet, in the bad sense of tribal? Well, the, and um, what you just said there is in the bad sense of the word. And, that, and that's, I think, this is, the, this is the parallel I see with, <clears throat> at least in kind of the, if I can tie this together, but the, 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 the tricky thing in meditation, particularly mindfulness culture, is I think the word that John Kabat-Zinn injected into his definition of mindfulness, which is non-judgmental. So you're, you're, you're trying to be aware without judgment. And, um, you know, I, having worked with people and listened to people on retreats talk about this, you know, so many people get tied up in, in kind of circles or knots trying to, to get rid of the judgment in their, in their thought stream. And, and then they judge themselves for not being non-judgmental enough in a way. And I, and I wonder if a similar thing is starting to happen in this discourse around tribalism that <clears throat> instead of getting away from uh, bad forms of tribalism, like you're just, you're, there's a, a sort of a growing condemnation of tribalism itself when in fact, just like judgment, it's not that we want to suppress all judgment. We want to refine the judgment and develop judgment in the course of our ability to see more clearly. And I, in my view, become better judges. And I think I'm wondering if there's a you can see a, a development of a more, uh, a more evolved kind of tribe, not not a, not a jettisoning of tribalism per se, but a, an evolution of the tribal impulse yeah. into a better kind of tribe. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to emphasize that. 
to say letting go of judgment in a certain sense or however you would describe it uh, can be a good thing. I'm not saying that you abandon all moral judgment. Um, you, you know, you can, I would argue that by abandoning a certain kind of judgment, you are better at judging what kinds of behaviors are, are counterproductive, are not conducive to human welfare and the well-being of, of, of people. And, and you do make, you do want to recognize those things. And, and, and the argument is that if you, if you're less judgmental in a certain sense, you are better at, um, figuring out how to solve the problems, how, how to reduce behaviors that are counterproductive. So it, it, for practical purposes, you, you are making the functional equivalent, equivalent of traditional moral judgment. It's, it's a way of, of trying to uh, become more skillful in a certain sense in, in your judgments. But um, that aside, I mean, that's, wait, what was the question you actually asked me? This is what happened. Well, I, I was trying to draw a parallel between the development of judgment that I see in meditation that you're, I think you're saying leads to better moral judgment, sort of suspending certain kinds right. of judgment leads to better moral judgment. And maybe the parallel would be with tribalism is like tamping oh, okay. down the bad. So good and bad tribalism. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Look, uh, I, I mean, in, in the last issue of my newsletter, I did a little thing about how tribalism, various ways, it's an unfortunate term, mm -hmm. the way it's being used now. But it is the term. It's a standard term. I'm not going to change that. Um, it is in this currently popular usage. It is a negative thing. It's inherently an accusation. I mean, it's like, oh, he's being tribal. You know, that's like not a good thing. And I'm, I'm fine with like, okay, use it that way. Come up with definition. Explain that this is not to, meant to reflect badly on, you know, traditional tribes and so on. But, but if what you're saying is, uh, First of all, isn't there uh, a time when it's appropriate for groups to come together around a common cause? That's not an inherently bad thing. I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, as I think you know, I've, I've uh, toyed with the, the phrase, you know, the tribalist tribe. I mean, I have that Twitter mm -hmm. handle, uh, tribalist tribe. I don't mean it's my Twitter handle, but, uh, but it's, I reserved it. Uh, tribalist tribe because it's it's an interesting. Uh, it's obviously paradoxical, and maybe that's a bad thing. It confuses people. Wait a second, how can you have a tribe if it's tri right? Uh, if it's tribalist, but I, I guess it, it would if such a thing existed. It would be the 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 tribe of people who try to recognize the distinction I just alluded to, like. You know, when you are, when you've got a group that is doing things that generate needless or counterproductive antagonism, especially involving, you know, the distortion, and, and that I think tends naturally to involve in some sense or another distortion of cognition of perception or perception. Um, that's the kind of tribe we don't want to be. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as a, as a, as a perfectly fine tribe. The tribe of Boston Red Sox fans is almost always harmless and they have a good time. Fine. Uh, it, it's and, and the tribe of people who want uh, fewer wars and better international governance, I like to think is a is a is a productive, good tribe. OK, it's um, I'm not against all forms of social organization. 
Um, I, I just, I, I would like, uh, I, I, I would like to be able to, you know, I, I would like to see people who recognize the dangerous forms of tribalism better organized and motivated into something like a tribe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Tribalist tribe. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, maybe a, a fear that some people have a, about meditation itself, that it like kind of gets kind of the, the straw man is that it would make you like dispassionate, disconnected, uh, indifferent to whatever issue of the day needs attention. Um, and, and I wonder if there's a similar thing with, with the tribal discourse that, you know, that there's a, a fear that if you become anti-tribal, that there, that, that you're kind of in a no man's land of passivity or inaction. Well, no, it, it's a tricky thing because I think you do, you know, you need passion to, you know, to be an effective kind of crusading organization or group. Um, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to abandon all of that. Uh, at the same time, it leads to counterproductive behavior, even I think, uh, for all of us sometimes, and, and, and including people who share my overarching values. I think there are people who have the same criticism foreign policy, American foreign policy that I do, who, and I do this sometimes, but there are people who I think do it more often, which is, uh, you know, just an, an overly um, hostile view of the foreign policy establishment, a counterproductively hostile view. And, may, and maybe I'm guilty of that. I, I have a pretty negative view. It's a hard calibration to make, but I, I certainly think that you need to, you know, for any cause, for any group that pursues a cause, you need, you need, to, you need to preserve a certain kind of passion. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it just seems like that would get you into forming a, a kind of a tribe that could, you know, you, you might be accused, I think, of a performative contradiction by, from a certain perspective. If you did if you, ha- if you formed a tribe that, that around what you're describing and um, at the same time espousing uh, anti-tribalism or something. Um, I think you, I think you've, you've, so if you, if you formed a tribalist tribe, what was the term A performative contradiction, you know, like performative contradiction. Well, first of all, do you know any people who aren't performative who are getting any attention these days in the modern, uh, no, I don't mean performative in in the sense of, of of publicly performing it. I mean, just like, like in the sense that trying to be, yeah, well, yeah, trying to be non-judgmental in meditation is kind of a performative contradiction because the, the, practice is move is 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 moving one in a direction towards greater discernment which is a, a refinement of judgment in a sense so it's a, you can't you can't get away from judging do you mean it's a contradiction you're doing in a performative way for the sake of impressing people or do you mean no it's like a- the statement non-judging is better than judging as a as a as a as a logical contradiction in the sense that that's a ju- like to say non-judging is better than judging is itself a judgment. Yeah, you're you're what you're actually doing is distinguishing between kinds of judgments. Right. Sense. I mean, I mean that that's what you really mean to right. say is that you will be you will make better discernments, which are value laden in a certain sense, if you if you abandon or try to uh, be less uh, in the throes of 
certain ways of making judgments that you're accustomed to. Right. Um, so I don't know what else to say. Uh, um, well, you know, if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter at tribeless tribe, I think there are no followers at this point because I have not done anything with this Twitter handle, but feel free if, if followers materialize, uh, then I guess we'll have a tribe, but those would be confined to people who made it this And far. if you created, and if you created a tribe, <clears throat> that would, that would clearly elevate your, 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 your profile into, into the secular guru category. I would be worthy of evaluation as a secular guru. If, uh, flocks of people, uh, followed the tribeless mm -hmm. tribe Twitter handle. That's one word folks. Tribeless tribe, no spaces. No M dashes. Yeah. Um, we don't have to get into it now. I think this is, we're coming to, to our, towards our end, but uh, I would be interested at some point talking to you about non-meditative ways to transcend tribalism that, that. Well, you know, you know, who just died is Aaron Beck, the, one of the founders of cognitive behavioral mm -hmm. therapy. That's kind of a good example. It, it, it's designed to help you with things like anxiety, but I think it kind of naturally uh, makes you in some sense a more mindful person. And, and there's, a, there's a hybrid thing called, uh, what is it? Mindfulness-based uh, cognitive. Mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking like, something I've, I've thought many times, I can't remember if I've said it here with you live, is that there's something, you know, one way of looking at it is meditation or cognitive behavioral therapy can help you transcend the cognitive distortions that cause unnecessary suffering. And there's, so there's a kind of transcendence that comes from the, the, the practice or the exercise or the therapy. And mm -hmm. I would say, you know, coming back to you and your work and your, your, your books in reading like the grand sweep of natural selection through the way you describe it or non-zero sumness, the way you describe it, that, that panoramic specificity that you give in a sense, if you, if, as I understand it, 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 there's a, there's a way that that confers a kind of trans experience of transcendence when you realize that more likely than not, any everything that you think, everything that you feel, every every mode of your feeling, is largely the result of the algorithm that we started talking about. Like that, that yeah. that puts a shiver down my spine every time I remember it, and and it sort of stops me a little bit because I realize, Jesus, you know, what it it really raises this question of what am who am I if if I take in all of that, that, uh, evolutionary programming. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to necessarily drive you down that rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, there's plenty of reasons to ask who am I, what am I already maybe, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you're an expression of this completely amazing thing, uh, that, you know, of, of the logos in a certain sense of the word. And um, there's an interesting uh, 
idea in the Greek version of the Logos that I may not remember exactly, but it, it's kind of that, uh, you know, the Logos, it, it, it's almost a fractal conception of the Logos that like within your brain is the Logos. It, it is a manifestation of the Logos, but it is the Logos. And in a way it is. I mean, we, we are having this conversation, we are working out uh, non-zero sum. The Logos has been the working out of non-zero-sum problems uh, as motivated uh, often by zero-sum forces. And, and by that, I mean, I, I'm including the evolution of the complex, uh, the eukaryotic cell and the, and the uh, multicellular life. And now here we are having a conscious conversation about, um, about non-zero-sum things. You, you know, the... the, the uh, there is this this manifestation of the logos in these in 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 new forms. Essentially, the logo the logos and, is talking about itself right now. Yeah, <laughs> I I think Philo of Alexandria, who was a leading uh, logos theorist, I think he might even have gone so far to say, "Is like there is a version of the mind of God in your mind." It, it kind of like not 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 doesn't fully deserve the title, but, and maybe I'm putting words in his mouth. I mean, his, his, uh, his work survives in fragmentary form. Um, but by the way, the last, last thing I would say, and this, I just can't completely elaborate on. If you, if you look at all the reasons, um, if you look at the, 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 the arguments you could bring to bear in favor of the hypothesis that evolution has an unfolding purpose and that we are in the process of realizing it, which by the way, wouldn't necessarily mean it's a good purpose. I'm not even necessarily saying that, but, but leave that aside. Um, you could make the argument and I made this at that meaning of life TV, uh, TV thing that is linked to from my New York times piece on evolution purpose that the seeming superfluousness of consciousness works in favor of the argument because there's an interesting wrinkle in the idea that subjective experience doesn't influence the physical world, doesn't influence our physical brains, which is that once you are a, an, an intelligent species that talks about subjective experience, subjective experience is influencing our brains. It's influencing yours right now. What's happening in your brain right now, Josh, is a result of the fact that I'm talking about subjective experience. This can only happen in a species with language and self-reflection, that in a certain sense, the existence of subjective experience starts to influence the world. Another way it influences our world is people say, wait, that caused me pain. And that gets your attention. Like, quit doing that to me. That caused me pain. Now, if you can argue uh, that the fact of subjective experience, once we start talking about it, helps communities congeal and work out moral rules of the road and could make it more likely that the whole planet will ultimately work out rules of the road and congeal. You know, like, hey, those drone strikes didn't feel good to my family. Stop. And, and you know, in and, and various ways uh, th that, you know, the, the, the fact of subjective experience and our reference to it and, and, and talking about it actually helps the world congeal. You could argue that 
if evolution has a larger purpose, that is the function of subjective experience. It's been latent. The functionality is latent until you get to this point in evolution. It's kind of like, um, you know, I mean, you may have to say that last bit again. I'm, I'm starting to have a, I'm, I'm feeling like I take, I've taken LSD. <laughs> okay. Well, that's not ever having taken LSD, but it, it just seems like, okay. I was getting a little bit turned around there at the end there. Yeah. Well, let me just say there are, uh, <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about, it. I mean, we really have covered the waterfront today. I've got to give it to us. Um, there are things with latent, uh, functionality, um, like, like in an organism's development, like for example, um, you know, um, like testicles, you see them in a one-year-old, but if you were only seeing the one-year-old, you'd go like, what are they for? I don't, I don't, I don't think I totally understand. There's some aspects of the testicle I don't get. And then they reach sexual maturity and you say, oh, I get that part of it was for producing semen. That's the function. But if you were just viewing the organism as a one-year-old, uh, you, you would be baffled. What's the function of that? And then later its functionality would emerge and you would say, oh, well, it had latent functionality and I didn't understand it. But in a way, that's more evidence that this organism was actually designed to do something, designed in quotes by natural selection. Uh, but, but the fact that you know, there, there, there's this kind of like uh, plan unfolding in the organism that was programmed in by natural selection. In a way, part of the evidence of the, uh, uh, for that is that things emerge whose functionality becomes apparent only later. What I'm suggesting is that if you wanted to argue that all of evolution has a, 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 a function, a purpose we don't totally understand, maybe it's to create a giant global brain, maybe it's to help us uh, create a giant global brain, then then develop technologies that help the universe replicate. I don't know, but um, but uh, you could you could say well another uh, argument for that, and I've made some arguments for that that I'm not getting into here. But 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 uh, another argument for that could be, well that explains what subjective experience is for. Its functionality manifests itself only when you get uh, a form of self-reflective uh, life with language, which is the species that who's talking about uh, subjective experience can help that species cohere, ultimately at a global level, because that leads to this moral discourse. Uh, this is- No, like, I, I think, I, think I get it now. I think I get point. it now. No, it's a really interesting point. <laughs> and it, and may, we may wind down, but I, I I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how how strongly is the the kind of the consensual scientific view on subjectivity that subjectivity has nothing to no no relationship or no influence on the material world? Because it just seems like I'm a, I'm a lay person, I'm a yoga teacher, but to me it yeah. seems like the in, the, in, the the intuitive sense is that it, subjectivity is in, intimately in, uh, interactive with the material world. And I could be completely deluded on well, that, but I, I would say it's it's not an idea that's not very popular in philosophy is interactive dualism. That's Descartes' idea. I mean, everyone agrees the physical world influences uh, subjective experience. The idea that there is the return arrow, the causality moving in the other direction, subjective experience uh, influencing the brain, which Descartes believed, is not popular. 
among philosophers. So I would say that for starters. Um, I would also say that if you talk to behavioral scientists, an epiphenomenal view is kind of implicit in what most of them say, because most of them would say, yes, they can in principle explain all the functioning of an organism in physical terms. That's just a, like an article of faith. And, and it's, it's withstood the test of time so far. We've gotten better and better at explaining the behavior of organisms. And, you know, if that's what you uh, believe, if you believe that you can come up with a complete explanation for the behavior of an organism by pointing to just the physical stuff, then it kind of follows that the subjective experience is functionally superfluous, right? If you don't need to invoke it. So I would say epiphenomenalism, I wouldn't say it's a majority view among philosophers necessarily. I would say, because for one thing, there are all these views like eliminative materialism and so on that I'm not even sure what they say they mean. So far as I can tell, sometimes they're just a way of dodging the question. Uh, but I would say the epiph an epiphenomenal view of consciousness is implicit in, a, in, in, behavior, in modern behavioral science because there is this assumption. And, and, it may, and it's probably true. I don't know, you know, that, that we can explain uh, everything in physical, all behavior in physical terms. So it's really, I would say it, it, is, it is a mainstream view, at least implicitly among behavioral scientists. A lot, there are a lot of philosophers who are epiphenomenalists. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's a majority view or what. But I'm just saying, you know, if you're not an epiphenomenalist, then you're then your world then there's weirdness in your worldview in other ways. Either you're saying consciousness doesn't exist, subjective experience doesn't exist, which is weird in the sense of being crazy, or you've got some view of consciousness doing this stuff that is considered and that view is considered weird by uh, mainstream philosophers and, 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 and behavioral scientists, if you put it that overtly, I think. So I don't know. It's just the world is really super weird. Um, but, but, this, but my argument for the, uh, the latent functionality of subjective experience is one I haven't seen made anywhere, and it now exists somewhere, if you follow a link in a New York Times piece. Um, the... Uh, but oh, what was again? I, I also think, I mean, an interesting feature. Oh, we should quickly say you brought up before we started taping the, the phrase unseen order. William James, you know, when I think it was in, in, in the in the course of defining, I haven't looked up this quote in years, but in the course of defining religion, he wanted to come up with a, a definition of religion sufficiently kind of abstract and modern to encompass mm, some pretty modern theologies and, and even Eastern spirituality, maybe. And he said, it's the belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme interest lies in aligning ourselves with this order. Well, I would say uh, my worldview is in that sense religious. Mm -hmm. You know, there, the, the, the unseen order has to do with this zero-sum, non-zero-sum logic that the algorithm of life uh, forces life to accommodate. And that accommodation has gotten us to where we are. and we still need to accommodate and recognize and now recognize non-zero-sum logic uh, and um, pursue our interests in accordance with it. And that, and a final interesting thing to me is I, I think that does 
we don't need to just become more mindful. I think we need to move closer to what I would call unashamedly moral truth. I mean, I, I also think it's, that's a little more complicated, moral realism. Is there, is there moral truth? But I think uh, it's not a crazy idea that there is. And I think the salvation of the planet is going to call for a more, uh, a closer alignment with moral truth on the part of the species. And that's a fascinating feature of the logos, if that's true too, right? I mean, the algorithm that got us here is amazing for a lot of reasons, but if it naturally, uh, given the fact of subjective experience and so on, if it naturally drives us to a point where we are compelled by self-interest to more closely uh, align ourselves with something you could reasonably call moral truth, if that's what's required for the salvation of the planet and thus the salvation of us, that's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. The, the, the whole thing is so much more amazing, I think, than is commonly acknowledged. It's amazing. Right. No, <laughs> a lot of these statements, if, if your hair isn't standing up by, on the back of your head, you need to listen to them again and, and, and think it through. And that's why, I mean, listening to you in this last stretch, it's like the, the Dharma of Bob in my head does seem to be coming into focus in that you have a, a scientific worldview that has this panoramic ability to elucidate this algorithm and that's looking at the algorithm i would say primarily through the through the, through the kind of the epistemological means of what we can observe and what we can work out through reason but to really have individuals align with this order, this this divine, or what was it, James? The uh, the implicit order, the uh, the unseen the order. Unseen right. order is, was... um, the the individual needs to, in sense, waken up to the subject, the, the subjective dimension of this order, which is which I think is right is is what you start to. Well, by that you mean what? Waking up to what aspects of our subjective life? The well, specifically, uh, I would say feelings, impulses, uh, perceptions. To wake up to those 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 experiences as and to to yeah. develop a truer relationship to what they are, rather yeah. than taking the the statements or the feelings and advertisements at face value. Right. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a richer. The good news it's a, it's a richer. There's a lot of good news here, but but it's a richer appreciation of your subjective experience. I mean, it sounds so, you know, you're right, like combating cognitive biases. That doesn't sound like fun. But, you know, pursued through the path we're describing, mindfulness, it's a richer appreciation of your subjective experience. And there's this irony, which is that, you know, there's kind of controversy uh, sometimes in the, in the mindfulness meditation community. Uh, how should you describe the relationship of a mindful person to their feelings, right? It's like, are you getting closer to them or are you actually getting more detached from them? Because there's a sense in which it gives you more objectivity with respect to your own feelings. But on the other hand, you, you, you are perceiving them more directly and more up close and personal because you're no longer, like especially the aversive feelings, no longer running from them. You're no longer like, ooh, anxiety, get it away from me. You're, you're, there, there's a closer uh, contact with and even immersion in your feelings that ironically gives you a kind of distance from you from them that at least allows you 
to be less, uh, you know, kind of mindlessly governed by them. And that's cool. Uh, but, but, but your point, I mean, it, it, it is richer. It is a richer experience of your own subjectivity. It's not a, a dulling of it in, in a, in a bad sense or a neutralization of it. Right. Yeah. I, I, the, the word detachment is a little bit of a tricky one. I think I'm a more fond of a sense of full presence too, but but in the intimacy of the presence, there's also, there's two things that occur. One, you see the, the fluid contingency of the experience itself. You see it as a state, as, as a process of change. It's, it's flowing. It's not static. And when it's no longer static, it's almost, uh, it's not that you, you become this, this unmoving witness in relationship to your whole sense of self is in a sense also fluid and contingent. So it's changing, you're changing. And when you, when you tune into that fluid, impermanent nature of it all, there's a, uh, there's less fixity within the experience. And by that, I mean, there's just less identity, there's less definition or, or um, state of being defined by the experience. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, people, they, you know, people wind up with their own ways of describing what's happening. And, and you're right. And a lot of people reject. I mean, there are people who say you can't say detach from your feelings. You can say non-attached. And I'm like, uh, is that so different? I mean, in defense of detached, it's a term that I, I heard used by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who we would both grant as something of an authority. Sure. On, uh, 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 and uh, but. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It, 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 it's 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 kind of paradoxical. And look, I think you have had more, probably more deep meditative experiences than I have. So I would I would to some extent yield to you. I think you've probably spent more time on uh, there's on the cushion. I'll just say and, it there because uh, you went there. There's no correlation between deep experiences and time. And I mean, there, maybe there is some correlation. There's well, some correlation. Oh, there is there's some correlation. Come on, there is a. But you know, in terms yeah. of, I mean. You've done enough practice. No, I mean, there can be none. You can spend a lot of time and go nowhere. Right. And there are people who, who are blessed with uh, actually spontaneous experiences that change their lives. And and uh, not many, but some. But there's a, for the rest of us, in between those two extremes, I think there is some correlation. And and uh, uh, we should not have the argument this could lead. No. But I think you do want to try to, to make it a, a daily practice if possible. And I, and, and go ahead, shake your head or something, but, uh, no, no, we're, I don't think you, you would not discourage. No, no, we you would not discourage. I've been thinking more about our last little hustle and, uh, on that theme. And, uh, I think we're more, we are more alike. We're, we're more on the same page. I agree. And finally, I just want to say panoramic specificity is a great phrase. I hope my work qualifies for it, but in any event, it's just a good phrase. You should use it. It's not my phrase. Uh, I'll, I learned it? of the phrase from Michael Brooks, who I think was quoting Ch Chogrim wow. Trungpa. That's so funny. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, the, the idea cool. of in Vipassana meditation, when your mind is wide open to the, the flow of data coming in, you know, the, you're wide open, that's the panoramic nature. And then you're, 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 there's a sharp crystalline specificity around just. That's a totally good description of a certain kind of meditative experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I know. Um, 
and it's uh, it's amazing. But I think you're, I mean, uh, they're like you and people that work in the way that you do have this kind of worldview mind that's capable of of taking in like vast stretches of history and knowledge, and then and then you're able to somehow hold on to the specific details therein that um, that is a little bit dizzying and uh and hats off to you for that ability for that dharma well uh thank you and i really appreciate your uh starting this series of conversations and uh indulging me because i i think this this conversation um comes closer to covering the waterfront in terms of my own worldview uh than um maybe any conversation I've ever had. Uh, wow. Well, I, I can't take credit for it. Uh, well, there are many, there are many people who want to sit down with me, you know, and hear my worldview, sadly, uh, include, you know, including people I'm closely related to, I gotta say. Um, uh, but, um, so I, I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and get to hear and, okay. and to try to keep up to the best of my ability. Oh, uh, you're doing at least as good a job as I am. You seem uh, either 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 your coffee has lasted longer, or you don't need coffee. I don't know. I had two it cups, seems... one during, one before. So I should have had more yeah. during. That was. My and I also favorite. meditated. Did okay. you meditate before? Uh, I meditated this morning in a in a kind of a cursory way. I woke up. Uh, not as long before this uh, encounter as would have been optimal because of the aforementioned waking up a little before I meant to and uh, having that dream and then finally getting back to sleep. And so resetting my yeah. alarm clock, this is more detail than anybody needs, but if you made it this far, that's what you right. get. Thanks for your attention, everyone. Yep. And thank you, Josh. Thanks, Bob.